0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So this morning, we're going we're to continue on in our series through First Thessalonians. And uh, instead of studying dozens of verses, as we have been doing in weeks past, we're just going to kind of stop and, and look intently at and really unpack uh, one verse. We're going to unpack the next verse. It's verse 13 uh, in chapter 2. And the reason I want to stop and slow down and focus in on this one verse is that I, I think we can learn an awful lot from it about God's saving work in our life. And I think we can learn an awful lot about how we participate in that work and how we experience that work. Uh, before we stand for the prayer of illumination, before we stand to hear this, hear this one verse, uh, I want to remind you of the context for the verse and I want to remind you of why Paul wrote it. And then once we get going in it, we won't refer much back to the, the book of First Thessalonians. So I want you to understand sort of the theme and the heart and the flow of what's going on uh, in the book. Uh, in, in chapter 2, Paul is defending himself. He's defending himself, his team, and his ministry. Uh, They're under attack. They're being uh, accused of some things. Uh, As you likely recall, if you've been with us over the last couple weeks, around 50 AD, Paul and his team uh, entered into the Macedonian city of Thessalonica, and they began to preach the gospel. They began to preach Jesus. They began to explain to people how uh, they can receive grace and forgiveness uh, in Christ, and they had this extraordinary impact, maybe one of the most impactful three weeks in all of the apostle paul 's uh, life. Uh, but after three weeks, uh, Paul and Sylvanus and, and Timothy uh, were, were run out of town. They created such a stir, and they created uh, such a following uh, that the book of Acts says that there were some jealous Jews and some power-hungry Greeks uh, that ran them out of town. And so Paul runs to Berea, and uh, Berea is not far enough away from Thessalonica because some, some Jews from Thessalonica follow him there, uh, cause problems for him there, and force him to leave again, and he, and he runs to Athens. Uh, Athens is not far, far enough away from Thessalonica because the same exact thing happens there. Uh, Jews from Thessalonica come to Athens, cause problems, force Paul to flee yet again. Paul finally lands in Corinth and we find out in Corinth that somewhere along the way he had sent Timothy back to the church in Thessalonica to check on them, uh, to see how these brand new believers were doing, to see how this infant church uh, was faring. Paul's logic was uh, no doubt, if they're chasing me all the way to Athens, they're probably uh, being pretty brutal to the believers in Thessalonica. And we know from chapter 3, verse 6 in 1 Thessalonians that when Timothy catches up to Paul, uh, again, uh, in Corinth, uh, we know that the report Timothy gave to Paul was incredible. He gave Paul uh, basically uh, a ton of good news. He let let Paul know that the believers, uh, the church, the gospel was moving forward in Thessalonica. But in addition to the good news, uh, Timothy also evidently told Paul that the persecutors of the church uh, in Thessalonica were attacking Paul and his team. They were attacking Paul's integrity. They were were attacking his credibility. They were trying to shake the Thessalonians from their faith in the gospel by by attacking Paul. And we looked at this extensively last week. If you weren't here, I'll just quickly remind you. uh, The persecutors were evidently accusing Paul of being what, what was known as a sophist, uh, a sophist in that day and age uh, was, uh, was a traveling uh, philosopher, an itinerant orator, a, a charlatan and a fake, someone with no real credibility as a teacher who would come into a town uh, and kind of live the life of a gypsy. They, they would come into the town, they would, uh, they would stir up all this pomp and circumstance, they would stir up all this emotion and, and, and all of this, uh, they would rile up the crowd in, in planned, um, and planned uh, and... And uh, specific ways, and then they would solicit from the crowd what they wanted from them uh, after supposedly delivering great mysteries to them. And so we know from the ancient writers like Epictetus and Dio Chrysostom and others that these sophists were rampant in Thessalonica, that they would get what they want, whether it be sex or money or glory, and then they would leave town as quickly as they came. And so Paul, only being there for three weeks, was evidently under the attack uh, by his persecutors as being a sophist. Again, in, in order to undermine his message, in order to undermine the gospel, they are attacking Paul and his credibility. And they're basically saying he's just like one of these other traveling teachers. And so that's why in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, Paul says over and over, if you were here either the last two weeks, we looked at verses 1 through 12. Paul says, I didn't do X, what I'm accused of doing. He said, but in fact, you know that I did why. You can recall how I behaved around you. He says in verses 10, showing showing that he knows that he's under attack, he's on trial uh, in in the court of common uh, man. He knows he's on trial and he says, you're my witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Five times in those 12 verses, he said, you know, or you saw. You can remember how I behaved when I was there. Your experience of me and your experience of my ministry is a big part of discrediting these accusers. So again, in chapter 2, Paul is defending his ministry. He's defending his ministry not to defend himself, but because he wants the Thessalonians to continue uh, in in the gospel, continue in their faith in Christ. And so in the first 12 verses of chapter 2, Paul is telling them, you experienced me. But then in verse 13, our verse for today, Paul Paul makes a subtle shift, and it's an important shift. It's important for our sermon today. In verse 13, Paul goes from reminding them of what they experienced of him to reminding them of what they experienced from God. Paul shifts in verse 13, and he goes from reminding them of his work among them to reminding them of God's work in them. And so he's going to tell them, based on what you experience from God, you can know that I'm a real prophet, I'm a real teacher, that I'm genuine and have credibility. And what I want to do is I want us to look at the verse and really dive into it, because he's going to explain what they experienced from God, he's going to explain what God was doing in their lives. And I want us to dive into that one verse and think about the same ideas for ourselves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right, two things. I want us to see two things. First, I want us to see God's sovereign work in his people. And second, I want us to see his people's participation in that work. On the, on the one hand, I want us to see God's sovereign work. On the other hand, I want to see his, his people's participation in that work. So first, God's sovereign work in his people. By looking at verse, verse 13, I, I want us to see what Paul repeatedly teaches over and over. And that is this, that, that God gives his, his people the gift of faith and that God is always at work in his people. Two things, God gives his people the gift of faith, and God is always at work in his people. So first, God gives his people the gift of faith, the gift of faith to receive the word. Uh, Look with me at verse 13. Notice how Paul starts out. It's obvious that he's continuing his line of thought. He says, and we also. But Paul doesn't say, uh, we remember, we also remember that, that you received and accepted our message. Paul Paul says he constantly thanks God that they received and that they accepted the message. Now, again, we said this several weeks ago, but I wanna remind you, I wanna draw your attention to the fact that Paul doesn't thank them for their reception of and for their acceptance of his proclamation. He doesn't say, hey, thank you for believing us. Paul also doesn't say, hey, no big deal you don't have to thank me for giving you the message. As if maybe Timothy had come and told him, hey, they're really grateful to you. He doesn't say, no, don't, don't thank me. He thanks God. But look at what he thanks God for. He doesn't thank God for making salvation available to anybody who accepts it. He doesn't thank God for some massive sign in the sky or some massive miracle that helped people uh, believe uh, the message that was being given to them. He doesn't say, hey, God, thank you for that big sign. That really helped them accept the message. Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' reception of the word and Paul thanks God for their acceptance of the gospel. Think about that he thanks God for something that happened inside the hearts of the Thessalonians. Paul gives God credit for, Paul gives God the glory for, Paul gives God thanks for their decision. And we also thank God for this, that when you receive the word of God, you accepted it as the word of God. Why does Paul thank God? Because Paul believes that God is sovereign over and God is sovereign in salvation. By that, I mean this. God doesn't just know who will be saved. It's God's power that causes salvation. By that, I mean that God doesn't just know who will accept the offer of the gospel. God brings about the acceptance of the offer within the heart of the believer. By that, I mean that God doesn't just know in advance who will believe the gospel message. God gives and activates belief in the message. When do we give thanks to someone? When do we express gratitude to someone? When it's genuine and appropriate, we, we give thanks to someone when they provide something to us. When they give a gift to us. It's, it's the same for Paul. The Thessalonians genuinely accepted the gospel. They sincerely believed the gospel. And Paul thanks God. Because Paul knows that ultimately God gave that gift to them. Notice at the end of the verse that Paul addresses them as Believers. Some 20 times in this book, Paul calls them brothers and sisters, but here he decides to address them as believers, as those who have faith. Uh, The word belief and the word faith in your English Bible comes from the same Greek word. We just don't, we don't like to use the word faith as a verb. We like to use the word believe. But Paul calls them believers because receiving and accepting the word of God as the gospel is conceptually synonymous with believing the gospel. It's conceptually synonymous with having faith in the gospel. When anyone believes the gospel, the ultimate credit, the ultimate applause, the ultimate gratitude for that faith does not go to them for the very real decision they made in trusting God. It does not go to the one who preached the passionate sermon that brought about that message. It goes to God for the precise and personal and sovereign power that made it all happen. Three times in this letter, Paul says, I'm thanking God constantly, always, day and night. All three times he's thanking God for their faith. We can see from this verse, we can deduce from this verse, God gives his people the gift of faith. It's not that we produce the faith or that we provide the faith and through that faith, God gives us salvation. But part of God's salvation of us, part of his sovereign work in us is to give us faith. Paul Paul teaches, he teaches directly and he assumes over and over for it to be true that faith is a gift from God. In Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, and in Philippians chapter one, verse 29, Paul clearly writes there in a conceptual way that faith is a gift from God. He says that God grants, God bestows, God gives faith. That when we genuinely accept the gospel, it is because God has given us new hearts. It is because God has raised us from the dead. It is because God has given us faith to believe. That is why over and over and over in his letters, he is constantly thanking God for the faith of the people who accepted his message. And so in our first point, we're here, we're just looking at God's sovereign work in his people. And first I want us to see just for the bare truth in it, the encouragement that can be garnished from it the gratitude that can flow from it. I just want us to see God gives the gift of faith uh, to those who receive his word. But also, secondly, again, to encourage us, to encourage faith in us, to encourage gratitude in our, in our hearts towards God also, put this on the screen as well. God also, through his word, is always at work in his people. So when we think about God's sovereign work in our lives, it's not just that he gives us faith when we enter into this journey, but all along the journey, God is at work in our lives, leading and saving and delivering and transforming and renewing and sanctifying. So so Paul, when he references the past, he thanks God for the Thessalonians' acceptance of the word. And then the last phrase of the verse The only phrase in the present tense, it's almost like this parenthetical comment. Paul quickly says that the word of God that they accepted into themselves, quote, is at work, present tense, in you believers. This is fantastic news. Uh, To be clear, the word of God or the message of God is an interchangeable concept with the gospel of God or with the good news from God. If you were to read 1 through 13, this would become very evident to you. Four times in verses 1 through 12, Paul says that they, while in Thessalonica, quote, declared the gospel of God, verse 2. They spoke the gospel of God, verse 4. They shared the gospel of God, verse 8. They proclaimed the gospel of God, verse 9. And so now in verse 13, when he references what they heard from them, when he he calls it the word of God or when he calls it the the message from God, It's just another way of saying the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. And so, what Paul is saying is that God's God's work in them is not just past tense. God's work is not just in them in the past to provide them the faith to start in the journey, but God is constantly and incessantly at work in them all along the journey. Again, this is incredible news. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate in our verse on what this work is. He doesn't further describe what is this work that God keeps doing. But we know that this is a favorite word of Paul's, this word work. It's a word for supernatural work and activity. And we know that Paul likes to use this. And in other books and other epistles, he describes what the work is. And so in our text, he just says, listen, God's word, it's at work in you. God's gospel, it's at work in you. The word that comes from God is of God. God's at work in you. But then he doesn't say what that work is. But in order to encourage us, I wanna tell you some of the things he says in other passages. In Galatians 3, for example, Paul writes that God supplies the spirit to believers. And in Galatians 3, Paul says that the spirit, same word, works miracles among us. And then as the letter unfolds, the Spirit's work is described in in these ways. This is what it means for the Spirit to be at work in us. First, the Spirit enables us, the Spirit leads us to relate to God as our heavenly Father. The Spirit's work in you is to help you understand that God is your Father and He loves you. Second, in the book of Galatians, the Spirit's work in us is to make us hopeful about our certain future. Anytime we think hopefully about the future, the new heavens and the new earth, the way in which the present pain that we're going through will be be redeemed in that place, Paul's like, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's God's work in you. Third uh, in Galatians, the work of the Spirit in us, according to Paul, is to produce fruit in us, is to make us loving, is to make us patient, is to make us kind, is to make us good. And so what we, what we gain from, from Galatians is this, that, that whenever we're believing that we're God's beloved children, whenever we're living with certain hope about the future, whenever we're, we're becoming a person of increased sacrificial love, this is the work being done in us by God, by his spirit. Or another way to to further understand what Paul means in our verse is to consider his use of the same word work when he uses it in Philippians. I'm going to put this one on the screen uh, behind me. In Philippians uh, chapter one, verse six, Paul writes this, for I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying that the work of God that starts in a believer when he gives them the faith to accept the gospel, that that work is a work God will bring to completion when he brings the faithful into the new heavens and the new earth at the day of Jesus' return. Paul is saying from the very beginning to the very end, that is a work of God in your life. From believing to entering into glory, God is at work. And then in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul uses the same word again and he writes this in verse 13 for it is God who works in you. And here Paul very specifically says what the work is. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul, Paul teaches that the present tense work of God in believers is to want to do what God wants us to do and the ability to actually do what God wants done. Paul said he gives you faith, He brings you to life he will one day usher you into glory and all along the way he's going to transform you into someone with a heart like God's heart to want what he wants and to do what he wants done that's the work of the word that's always active in a believer do you want to believe to a greater degree and to a deeper level that you're the beloved child of God good news great news God is doing that sovereign work in you. Do you want to be less anxious in the present because you're more hopeful and confident about the future? Good news. God is doing that sovereign work in you. Do you want to be more loving, more selfless, more sacrificial, more humbly heroic? If so, good news. Believer, God is doing that sovereign work in you. That's what he's been doing. That's what he is doing. That's what he will do. Do you want to increasingly want what God wants? Do you want to increasingly do what pleases God? Do you want to be more evangelistic? Do you want to be a person who does more more deeds of mercy and works of justice? Do you want to be a person who who lives out their call for God's glory and for the good of everyone around you and for no gain in and of yourself? Good news. That's the exact work that Paul says God is doing in believers. And so as we slow down and as we unpack this first, the the first thing we see is God's sovereign work in his people. The first thing we see is that God enables us to accept his message. And then through that same message, God works in us, God changes us, God transforms us. God continues to lead us In the life of Christ. Now, I wanna move to our second point. I wanna move to God's people's participation in that work. (laughs) Provide a little part of the, the other part of the one two punch. God's people's participation in that work. So, with it being said, and with it being true, that God begins and that God carries on and that God will bring to completion his saving work in us. I want to ask what's our participation in it. I want to ask what does it feel like to be us when he's doing that? Or maybe even this, how do we avail ourselves to that work? And maybe even how do we possibly accelerate that work? You see what I'm saying? So if God's committed himself to doing that, what does it feel like to be us when he's doing it? What are we, how are we participating in it? How do we step into it? How do we avail ourselves to it? Uh, How do we participate in it? In the first point, I sort of drew out and I emphasized, and I wanted to pound into our heads this truth that God is sovereign over, God leads us in, God initiates in, God is in absolute control of, God is, is lording over every bit of our salvation, past, present, and future. It is utterly and absolutely by grace, it is completely unmerited, it is, it is completely unsolicited. It is God's favor. But at the same time, I want us to see in this passage that the Thessalonians were actively experiencing and responsibly participating in God's saving work. So think for a second about the Thessalonians' experience of Paul's ministry among them. Just think. When they heard the gospel of Jesus, of God taking on skin, living a perfect life, dying the death he didn't deserve being raised from the dead, ascending to heaven, when, when they heard that, when they heard the gospel, did they say, oh my, God has given me a new heart. God has raised me from my spiritual deadness. D- did they say, wow, God is sovereignly allowing me to accept his word and his good news? Or did they say, I receive I accept this gospel. They accepted. When Paul heard that they were being persecuted, did he say, you know what? It's no big deal. God's got this. Or did he write them a letter to encourage them in their faith? So think about it. Did they they exercise faith? Did they place their faith in Jesus? Or did they say, well, would you look at that? God is giving me the gift of faith. He will write about this in, in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. In Philippians chapter one, verse 29. We know the answer because we've experienced the answer. They heard the gospel. They probably had questions about the gospel. They probably doubted the gospel. They eventually accepted the gospel. It is only later when they look back on that experience, it's only later when being taught about that experience did they understand God's power in it, God's initiative in it, God's sovereignty over it. But, but listen to this. As we look back and understand God, God's sovereignty in our salvation, we'd be fools to not continue on in the future in the same way we lived in the past. I'm going to define that. In other words, when we begin to hear that God is sovereign over our salvation, if we stop doing what we were doing when He saved us, we're fools. The grace of the Bible is not a sedative, it's a motivator. The grace of the Bible does not make you lazy, it compels you, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You you see, if you think about it differently, our, our experience of and our participation in God's salvation of us in the past is the exact same participation we're called to now in the present. This is why Paul called them believers when he speaks about God's present work. But Paul is telling them that they will experience God's ongoing work just like they experienced his initial work. Paul is telling them to participate in God's ongoing work in the same way in which they participated in his initial work. He's calling them to this ongoing posture, this ongoing journey of faith. So in case I lost you and I realize there's a chance I did, let me say this. I want us to consider how they experienced and participated in God's sovereign work because our verse insinuates what Paul clearly says in Colossians chapter two, verse six, that we grow and we develop and we are transformed, that, that we tap into God's saving work now by doing over and over and over what we experienced during that time when God converted us. I'll say it again. In Colossians chapter two, verse six, Paul says, you grow by doing the same thing you did when you were converted. And so when we look back, we will be wise to continue in the future with what we were doing in the past. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6, therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And then in in verse seven of Colossians 2, he says, continue in faith and gratitude. So what I wanna do is I wanna look at the verse And I wanna wanna ascertain from the verse what their participation was in God's work, what they were experiencing, because that's exactly what we can lean into to experience God's work more. I wanna say two things about their participation in God's work. First, we'll put this on the, the screen. They, or we, receive and accept his word and his gospel. So look back at the passage, look back and see what Paul says. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, you accepted it as what it really is, the word of God. And so receive and accept are two different words in the Greek language, that's pretty obvious. In English, receive and accept are similar, but, but, but they're not synonymous. They're similar, but they're close to being Synonymous. In the Greek, these words are very much related, but they're really not that similar, and they are by no means synonymous. Paul is saying, I am glad you didn't just receive, but you also accepted. Okay, so listen, receive in the Greek is a word that is very passive in nature. My hunch is that this is what we tend to do with the word of God. We receive it. It is very passive in nature. It's almost always used in the Bible in connection to listening to and receiving a tradition. That's part of what Paul's glad they did. But accept in the Greek is a word that is very active in nature. It means to take and to grab and to clutch. And Paul is saying, I'm thankful to God that when you received the word of God, you didn't just receive it, You accepted it. You grabbed a hold of it. You didn't let it go. You didn't just passively say, I don't reject it. You actively said, I won't ignore it. That's the difference between the two words. Does that make sense? I think we tend to passively receive the Bible and the preaching of the gospel and the reading of the word. And Paul said, I want you to grab a hold of it and not let go of it. The, the word here for accept was often used, and this is positive, okay? So it's not, and it's not always positive in our culture, but in, in Paul's culture, this was positive. It was used to describe someone's aggressive hospitality towards a guest. Think about the most hospitable person you know. Think about the person who doesn't just let you come into their home, but the person who lets your presence in their home command their full attention, don't just think about the person who'll let you crash at their place. Think about the person who makes it their top priority to stay focused on you and to stay focused on your need. In Paul's culture, where aggressive hospitality was valued. In Paul's culture, we're taking a hold of a guest and making sure their presence was felt and honored, where, where that was valued. Paul says, I'm so thankful to God that you didn't just politely listen to me and receive my message about Jesus. I'm so thankful to God that you aggressively clutched onto it, that you made it the focal point of your heart, that you made sure that everything else revolved around it. What happens to us when God is at work in us? His message, his word, his gospel, it's not just tradition to us. It is a prize to be grasped and clutched and held onto. His gospel is something to be made much of. Think of the day you were converted. It was so glorious and beautiful. And Paul says how quickly we just later receive it as tradition and don't grab a hold of it. And focus all of our lives around of it. What can we do to avail ourselves to God's work? What can we do maybe even to accelerate his work? I think the verse is encouraging us to grab a hold of his word, to grab a hold of his message, to grab a hold of his gospel, to not let it become inferior to anything else in our entire lives and in our world. If we want to experience God's power for change, we have to spend more time moving his word from that, that of the place of a tradition to that place of an honored guest in our heart. We have to more feverishly, not just let God's gospel crash inside of us somewhere and take up a little bit of space. But we have to let it be the honored guest of our heart. And Paul is saying, when you received, yea, accepted the gospel that was preached to you, it was the end all be all. And he is saying to us, that's how you grow. Is God sovereignly in charge of it? Sure he is. But what are you gonna be doing while he does it? Receiving and accepting. Receiving and appropriating. Receiving and applying the gospel to every square inch of your heart. That's when we grow. Second, we'll put this on the screen. The second uh, truth that we can pull out of this text as to how the Thessalonians... We're, we're participating in God's work and how we can participate in God's work. We hear His word and His gospel from each other. Don't miss the little phrase in verse 13, which you heard from us. So here's the point God's word, God's message, God's gospel, God's proclamation, God's speaking, it was delivered through His messenger. So the Thessalonians, listening to Paul, Timothy, and Sylvanus, didn't just accept their teaching, quote, as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. God likes to speak through each of us to the other. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that anything a human says to you is God's word. But this does mean that God likes to communicate his word through humans. And to be sure, there's something unique and special going on with Paul as an apostle in the first century when God is writing his scriptures. But we, in a very real way, are used by God to communicate his gospel to one another when we speak the scripture. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. How do we let the word of Christ dwell deep inside of us? By grabbing a hold of the fact that we're here to teach and admonish one another and we're here to be taught and admonished by one another. There is of course incredible value in reading God's truth and in reading his gospel in private worship. That's why we want you to do it every morning all by yourself. But there is intense value in hearing his gospel and hearing his love and hearing his forgiveness and hearing his promises from other real people who actually know you and declare it to be true. It is so hard to proclaim the beauty of the gospel to your own heart. But how beautiful are the feet of the ones who come and preach it right to the core of your being in the midst of whatever you're going on, what's going on in your life. What was happening in the Thessalonians' lives when they were converted? Someone who believed the gospel for them proclaimed it to them. And they heard it for what it was. Not a message from man, but a message from God. What was going on in our lives and in our hearts when we were converted by the gospel? I remember the Waffle House waitress that converted me, that God used to convert me. It was as if the Shekinah glory was behind her head and she was speaking God's truth right into my heart. How can I participate in and maybe even accelerate God's work in my life now? Same thing. Us teaching and admonishing one another and letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Uh, I'll close with, with this. Uh, this week I was working on the sermon and I was working on these glorious truths and rehearsing these realities and frankly, I was quite numb to them. And Trisha called and let me know that I needed to come home for a little while and it, it would behoove our family if I could. And so my mind was thinking, well, I'm gonna keep working on the sermon, but I'm gonna go home. So I sat on the couch, turned on the TV, did what a responsible dad does. And, and two of my children were over on the couch over there and they were picking at one another, playing with one another, uh, nagging one another, creating commotion with one another, And they were really annoying me. And they were really agitating me. And I was getting quite worked up by it. Like I could feel myself getting agitated by what was going on. And then I looked down and I saw my five-year-old right there, Indian style, on the floor with his thumb on his middle finger and his thumb on his middle finger sitting Indian style with his eyes closed. (laughs) I said, Liam, what are you doing I'm focusing. I said, and I have no idea, by the way, if this is from the Lord, if he's been regenerated. I have no idea. I don't know if this is his temperament. He's such a people pleaser. I have no idea. So I'm not saying he's the next great prophet or anything, okay? So just just take it for what it's worth. I said, what are you focusing on? I'm focusing on the fact that Jesus died for us and he loves us and we'll be with him forever which is exactly what Michelle's been teaching him in City Kids. And I thought, you idiot. Where will peace come from in this circumstance? It's gonna come from focusing on the fact that Jesus loves you, died for you, and you'll be with him forever. (laughs) What had I been studying for hours? Jesus loves us, died for us, and we'll spend forever with him. What went right into my heart as if God were speaking a five-year-old. Do we want to experience this transforming work of God? God says, grab a hold of my gospel and take it to the middle of your life. And God says, get yourself around real people who in real circumstances can speak the truth to you. They're gonna be better at it than you are for yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, so much for the truth that you have loved us with an eternal love. that that it is so good for our souls to hear that we did nothing to earn your love and therefore we can do nothing to lose your love. It is so good for us to hear that your love for us will never end because it never began. It is so good for us to hear and to have our minds boggled by and to be frankly confused by your work in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that to apply this incredible redemption of the Father to us, you accomplished it at the cross. We we thank you that you have have provided a, a gospel that is so amazing that we don't have to do anything to get it and we can't lose it. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to hold as completely and absolutely true the reality that you are saving us, you're sovereignly leading us in our salvation, and at the same time, you encourage us to work out this salvation with fear and trembling, to apply this salvation to every nook and cranny of our lives and heart, that you want us to endeavor to live a life like Christ, that, that you want us to give all of our being to growing in Christlikeness. We pray that we would believe both of these and be energized by them and that we would experience this power and this transformation. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things.